From the hill country of Texas, this is One Radio Network. It's the real world of money featuring Andrew Goss. Mr. Goss is an expert on the U.S. monetary system and currency historian. There's the world of money and there's the real world of money. And your host, Patrick Timpone. Asking the musical question, what is real money? That, that, that's a good question, isn't it, Mr. Goss? What is, what in the heck is money anyway? Holy <laughs> Cow. Yeah, whenever I do the live <laughs> seminars, I always challenge anyone in the audience. Anyone in this room have a dollar? And not a soul in the room, except me, has a dollar in their pocket. Because what do they have? Federal Reserve notes? Is that well? Talk? That's right. Yeah, they Is come it? out with notes for a dollar. Where did the term dollar come from? From the uh, from the region in Germany, the Joachim Valley, where we had a taller, T H A L E R. And uh, those folks that became immigrants to the United States uh, brought that term with them. Dollar became dollar. And uh, next thing you know, we have dollars. Dollar? Oh, I see. Now, the reason we don't call it a dollar now is because it's not tied to any backing? Yeah, I don't call it a dollar. I call it a, well, I call it a Federal Reserve Accounting Unit dollar. (laughs) Federal Reserve Accounting Unit dollar. Yeah, you can just use the acronym. F-R-A-U-D. For, oh, I so <laughs> clever, aren't you? Clever. Oh, I hate fraud. it. Fraud. It's a fraud. That's what it is. It's a fraud. Federal, there's sure a lot of frauds out there today, boy. They're just swimming in frauds. Here's our phone number, 888 This is Patrick Timpone. And a quick reminder that we are going to do, we're going to dig into the Federal Reserve on Saturday and pick it apart like we've never done before, have a special program. All right, Andrew, similar to what we did last Saturday on the on the Great Depression, Great Depression which, by the way, is on the front page of OneRadioNetwork.com. It was on there about 30 minutes after we did it, and it's right on there. You can click on it and really learn how the Great Depression started, what happened during it, and what happened after, who was responsible, who benefited, and who took their lumps. And we'll do the same thing Saturday, 3 p.m. Central, all about the Federal Reserve because we get into it a little bit each week, but never really spend a lot, you know, like really dig in, have we? No, we really there's have a, There's a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of stuff in there, huh? There really is, if folks uh, understand, like even, <clears throat> even uh, what, what shall we call them, contemporaries or people that uh, profess to understand the Federal Reserve system still refer, for example, to the Federal Reserve Bank as though there was only one. Or uh, the Federal Reserve, call it the Fed, and then say that it's privately owned. Right. Well, only com- components of the system are privately owned, and other components of the system are government agencies. So when you get your facts mixed up like that, uh, it's easy for a politician to dismiss you because uh, you don't have the, the full story. Yeah, yeah. If you'd like to email Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com, Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Received an email this afternoon from Walter, and he said that uh, he was not sure if he was going to be around, but he wanted me to ask you this, and very interesting question, which I had not really thought about in detail. He wanted to know why he said that 
Andrew picks on the Fed as being the, the boogeyman, and I'm not sure you do that, but that's his, his observation. And he said, isn't in fact the Congress the problem and we do control the Congress? So doesn't it all come back to us? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Is, is he I, correct there? He is correct. If I give the impression that I'm picking on the Fed, I'm just jealous. <laughs> I wish I had their power. Well, that's what he said in his email. We'll go through the whole thing. But he said, well, what, do you, what would you do if Congress gives you this thing? Are you, what are you going to say? No. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you you under you believe the same thing? Yeah, I understand what he's uh-huh. saying. You can't you can't blame the Fed for this. I mean, they they took a franchise that's uh, lucrative, that's uh, good for uh, their long term health, <laughs> and to the detriment of the country. So what do, what would you expect them to do? You know, stand up and say, "Hey, it's not patriotic. Let me give it all back." Uh-huh. It, it doesn't sound. Uh, but, but there is a there's a tale in there, Andrew, that the people that form the Fed are the Fed. Well, yes. I mean, that's yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. a little sticky, right? It indeed is, is a sticky wicket. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Congress would would nationalize the Fed, I'd be very happy. And then, you know, the Fed could exist in its present form, just within the confines of government. Uh, in fact, one of my newsletters entitled Let Congress Do It might speak to Walter's point. And uh, if he would like to read that, I'd, I'd be happy to send him a copy, or he could get it um, at One Radio Network. Okay, all right, good. But the, but the idea being that, you know, if, if Congress has the power to issue a bond, and if the bond is good, you know, the minute Congress says, okay, we just uh, spent $1,000 that we don't have, so we're going to issue this $1,000 bond, and it's going to yield 5% interest. Now, that bond is an IOU, and the element that makes that bond good would also make a bill good. If Congress just said instead, okay, we just spent $1,000 that we don't have, we're just going to print up $1,000 bills that don't bear interest, and we're just going to spend them into circulation. Now, the effect would be the same. It's the same $1,000. The only difference is it has no interest attached to it. It's directly issued by we the people. Mm, uh-huh. And that's a much more sensible way, in my view, to run the monetary system. Sure, plus... Do we not give just a tremendous amount of power to this entity we call the Federal Reserve because they make just tremendous profits on making money by making money? Indeed, yeah. And now, to be fair again, because, you know, there are a couple of uh, critics of my work out there. I do want to uh, answer them. One, for example, says, um, well, each year the Federal Reserve returns whatever's left over from its operations to the Treasury. And last year, they returned almost $200 billion to the Treasury of the United States. No, that's States. a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And to be fair, yes, we did get that $200 billion. But I always told the grandma story, you know, grandma send you to the store for a quart of milk and a loaf of bread and, oh, pick a few things up for yourself. Here's a $20 bill. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know. I came back with, you know, candy bar, a whistle, a comic book. Grandma was lucky if she got 15 cents in change. I certainly took care of myself, and of course I brought her her milk and bread. Hmm. Now, the same could be true for, for the Fed. If you look at their goodies, you know, while they're a little more sophisticated than comic books, I mean, they do have a $30 million art collection in the private areas of their establishment, and a full-time curator to look after the artwork. And that's $30 million at cost, too, Patrick. You know how that art goes up the yeah. same way rare no. coins do. Well, they're good investors. Indeed <laughs> <laughs> they are. And then their office buildings. You know, they have the most elaborate edifices in the, in the world. You go to a Federal Reserve Bank building, it's just James Bond style, you know. 
and uh, they spend plenty of money on that, and then they pay their salaries, they pay their employees, they pay for the 47 Learjets that they fly around the country, and the air, and the pilots, and the maintenance mechanics, and when they're all done, then they still have 200 billion left to send back to the treasury, and then and then plenty of money to to use for whatever purposes they want. Uh, monetary operations. Monetary operations, right? Yeah, they it, don't even, and they don't talk about that. Is it fair to say then, and we will get in deeply into this on Saturday, but just to whet your appetite, is it fair to say then that the, the salaries are, are uh, very handsome? Is that oh, a fair yeah. word? Is yeah. that a fair word? Handsome indeed, yeah. yeah. Six-figure salaries abound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like... You're talking two, three hundred, four hundred thousand yeah, a year. Two, three, four hundred thousand a year mm-hmm. uh, for you know mid-level managers. The the kind of salaries that Congress would never approve mm-hmm. of. But so then it literally would take quote unquote an act of Congress mm-hmm. to to change this. But they could change it, couldn't they? They sure could. could yeah, they? Congress granted. I mean, they could really do that. So it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. It could be a peaceful overthrow of the Federal Reserve, if you will, if Congress wanted to to get their arms around that one. I doubt it would be peaceful. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and you, the president would probably want to veto it because he's he's probably can we say safely he would be friends of those uh, Federal Reserve people. Well, you know, the, a I mean, lot of the money that they make, uh, they use to, of course, cement their position. I and, see, and that's done through campaign contributions. Mm-hmm. Now, as I've noted in previous uh, forums. If you look at the, and again, very easy to find, Federal Election Commission FEC dot gov look at the records and see that the primary owners of the federal reserve bank of new york for example are the prime contributors to both sides of the campaign by far like there's not even anyone close to them the the second biggest is their lawyers and then the third uh, largest is their lobbyist so they employ a law firm they employ a lobbyist the lobbyist and the law firm uh, give plenty of money, and uh, as does the bank themselves. And so the only people that are elected are people that are friendly to the ultimate owners of the fe- very Federal Reserve. Now they're being asked to abolish. And if these guys aren't making any money, well, then they sure can't contribute to any campaigns. Mm-hmm. We might go back to old-fashioned, you know, stumps and people talking to people and, you know, no slick campaign stuff because not enough money to do it. And I, I think it would also be a fair assumption, or would it, I'll ask you, that with all this money, there are probably strings attached and could be to protect their interests, the Federal Reserve's interests. A little bit of a quid pro quo. Sure. I but mean, they, it's, it's only it's, reasonable to assume that. Yeah. People, I mean, it's a lot of money. People donate for a reason. Sure. They don't donate because they're patriotic. They're looking for something. Okay, we'll really dig into the Federal Reserve on Saturday like we did the Depression last Saturday. And uh, speaking of those folks at the Fed, they released their meeting uh, um, minutes that they had, I guess, uh, the last day of April. And it wasn't a very bright, cheery forecast. Uh, GDP, what, 0.3 to 1.2, if I recall, for 2008, unemployment's going to be up, inflation's going to be up, and so they, do they not have an invested interest to be uh, maybe a little bit more rosy than what it really is, but it sounds like they might be telling what they believe to be the truth? Yeah, I mean, remember, this is the Board of Governors, and the Board of Governors is separate and distinct from the 
uh, Federal Reserve banks. Oh, okay. See, that's right. Yeah. All right. The Board of Governors, they are separate from the bank. That's right. The Board yep. of Governors. And they are the ones that have the meetings. And do they control the interest rates? They do. Yeah. But I'm sure they have input from the guy in New York and all that. Well, the input comes through the manager of the Open Market uh, Committee. Now, the Federal Open Market Committee, which is there, the Federal Reserve Board has an arm, if you will. And this arm uh, operates within the markets to influence monetary policy. And the arm is called the Federal Open Market Committee. Hey, here we go, Patrick. We're getting into the Fed right now. You yeah, know? I know. We keep, we <laughs> Look, keep, we keep, we it. keep going there. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and we, so, and the, <laughs> the open market committee are the guys that actually spend the money. You know, they're the guys that get out there and do the operations. They buy bonds and sell bonds. You know, they make a deal with the Bank of Canada or the Bank of Mexico and say, here, here's a bunch of our dollars. Give us a bunch of your currency and so on. So this is all conducted through the Federal Open Market Committee, which is under the jurisdiction of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. So mm-hmm. that Federal Reserve Board again. So what is your opinion with... I'm kind of confused here with this massive amount of increase in what they call staples grain. It's just huge what's going on, and also, of course, oil. But then if you look back at the, at the, at the amount of of uh, increase in these prices and it's only been like six months i mean oil was 60 bucks a barrel half as much only six months ago so the it, to me it doesn't compute that this is all supply and demand thing as it keeps being formatted well it's speculation and there's no question about it understand something when when a speculator decides that oil is going from 60 to 120 dollars a barrel mm-hmm. and so he runs out and buys a contract for 100 barrels of oil a futures say. thing a futures contract an option or whatever that actually counts as okay now there's 100 barrels of oil gone right oh it really does it counts well, it's, it does yeah mm-hmm. because they've allocated that 100 barrels of oil as if he's going to take possession and actually burn it out of the back of a car and, and that's not going to happen in fact, he's only buying the contract for the sole purpose of making money. No other purpose. He has no intention of actually using the oil. Right. And so this is really where the imbalance is caused or being caused. In fact, uh, India just moved to eliminate some of the futures tradings on some of those staple instruments or staple items that you're talking about, things like rice. Yeah. Because in reality, to allow speculators who have no intention of using the rice or the oil or the corn or whatever we're talking about. And they're merely buying it to speculate because they think it's going up. And as soon as it goes up, in part by their very action, uh, then suddenly uh, uh, the price goes up. They make money and now they sell. And there's still the same amount of food that there was, sure. the same amount of corn or grain. It's just that everyone's paying more for it. As a result of their cornering the market. And this is really what these big hedge funds are now capable of doing. The sort of things that the robber barons used to do back in the day. You know, Jay Gould in the gold corner of 1869. This is uh, those that fail to study history are doomed to repeat it. Hmm. So then the this whole food crisis, certainly there is more people every day and eating more food. Indeed. And, but it, it's not... It's just a whole lot of different factors, and it's not Yeah, somebody just- did some math. Somebody said, wait a minute, if you've got corn supplies at 14-year lows, 
And if you have, you know, we're, we're putting a program in place to make uh, gasoline out of our corn, out of our growing acres in the United States. So that's going to cut the world supply of corn. That means the price is going to rise. Hey, what do we do? Buy corn. Simple enough. Huh. Out of the $130 oil, can you speculate, if you're allowed to do that? 60%. Uh, uh, 60%? Yeah. Of just of, of just of people uh, going short Speculators, going yeah. Wow. Yeah, speculators. That's amazing. It is. It's a big cap. That's amazing. Holy come on. Now, <clears throat> and you know what that sits with? If you look at consumption on a worldwide basis, and you look at production on a worldwide basis... You'll find an excess of production right now, today, of about 2 billion to 3 billion barrels a day, a million, 2 to 3 million barrels a day, more than we use. Right now. Hmm. There's no shortage. The idea that there's not enough oil is inaccurate. In fact, there is a surplus of oil. The, The production is above consumption. Is it correct to assume then, Mr. Goss, that the, the people making the most when oil is, is 130 are the people who produce it and you buy it from them? Not necessarily. No, no. I mean, don't you have to give nearly 130 to the Russians or, or Hugo Chavez or, or the uh, Saudis or Indeed something? Indeed, you do, unless they forward sold their production to oh. you six months ago when it was $60 and oh, now, and now it's 130 and you're making money on speculation. So people do that as well. Oh, indeed they do. You know, when, when you're going to put a, an oil refinery up or you're going to uh, dr- put a, a poke a hole in the ground and start pumping oil out, you want to know that oil is going someplace, so you strike a deal. You say to Texaco or you say to Amoco or you say to whoever, I'll sell you this amount of oil per year or per month for the next six months or a year or 10 years, you know, however long you make your arrangement. And then they promptly put that on the market. That production, if you will, is then hedged or sold forward so as to make sure everybody's locked in so that there are no surprises. You know, you started drilling when oil was 60 and now it's 15 and you can't pay your bills. Everybody's locked in. And so this causes uh, supply and demand to be leveled out over many months of production. In fact, many years in many instances uh, so that you know, the folks that are putting up the money to drill the rig and to get the oil out of the ground know that they're going to get X amount of dollars for the next set number of years for the oil that's produced. And this is all like uh, hedged out and mm. laid out in the in the futures markets. Well, would not have the the airlines have have purchased a lot of oil uh, a long time ago and Indeed not they do and not be paying 130 for it. Indeed, they but do. They're really they're, having a hard time. And uh, well, American Airlines has said now if you have one bag, it costs you an extra 15 bucks. You see that? Yeah, the smarter airlines, and in fact, uh, UPS and FedEx and uh, others that use a lot of fuel have a hedging program in place. You know, they know their fuel costs and lock them in for the next year. But just because now, and I'm a corporation, and I'm a greedy one at that, okay? And I've locked in my fuel uh, earlier in the year or last year when it was $60, and now it's worth $120, why don't I just leave my plane on the ground and sell my oil? I mean, I, oh, I, see, I yeah. you know, now I've got this big profit on the books. Should I give that back to the consumer? I don't think so. Not when I'm at a competitive advantage or disadvantage if I haven't done it uh, with every other airline on the field. So I'm going to raise my prices if I'm able to, regardless of whether I've had the good sense to, to hedge my um, uh, fuel position or not. Right. I, just for fun, I called uh, a broker that I know in Chicago. 
and he does like oil options. For example, you could buy like a $150 oil option. And once oil reaches 150 bucks, and you would get $1,000 for every dollar over that. And you have a certain amount of time for that to come to maturity, like a year or so. You, you cannot believe how expensive they are. I mean, even a $250 oil call, what they call like an op- a call, you know, to buy, be able to buy uh, 1,000 barrels of oil at $250 is something like uh, $18,000. So it's an $18 a barrel premium over the current price. No. Uh, oh, is that how they work that? I don't know. Well, yeah, because, I mean, if you think about it, you have the right to, as well, you have to do the but math. But for 18000 You'd have to do the math and send it backwards. You're getting the right to buy it at $250. Uh, yeah, $250. <laughs> oh. Two, could you imagine? I you mean, know, you you got to go another $120 a barrel just to get into the money for $18,000. Yeah. They're, so there's somebody that thinks there's a there, this thing is not going down. No, they're fixed. That's why another, I called. That's yeah. why I called. I wanted to see what it was. Yeah, they're figuring another $100 uh, in the price. And indeed, if you look at uh, Goldman Sachs report, uh, their oil analyst uh, talked about a super spike at $200. So uh, I think the smart money knows that mm-hmm. the, the, the the speculation, if you will, is, is going to drive the price of That's oil. That's going to keep going. Yeah. Well, the, the fellow from Goldman Sachs, he keeps talking. I had his name here. It's a kind of a funny name. Yeah, try to pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, Rujivis or something like that. But now he's talking two hundred dollar a barrel, and they said they laughed at him when he said one and one fifty. Now, what would be his motivation if if the Goldman Sachs? Well, he's just an oil analyst. But it, but we you have talked about how Goldman was really really in the end. You yeah, know, but really. they don't make it all the way down at the level of the oil analyst. You know, his so job doesn't is, he have a chance of people giving him a hard time for saying that kind of indeed stuff? Indeed, he does. And I and I wonder if perhaps anyone has asked him to temper his message. I mean, does he think it's really four hundred dollar oil, <laughs> and he's only saying two? Uh, I don't know. You know, the the bottom line, however, is that w- within the firm. There are these Chinese walls of information that you don't think that everybody in the firm understands or knows what's going on. They keep it even from their own employees. Mm-hmm. And certainly they're allowed uh, freedom to write reports or, or uh, you know, make opinions as long as they're not diametrically opposed to the operations of the firm. I doubt they would get any uh, feedback whatsoever. We're with Andrew Goss. He's a 30-year currency historian. He has two books, Secret World of Money and Uncle Sam Cooks the Books. And we're here Wednesdays with Andrew between 7 and 8 o'clock. We're here at One Radio Network every night between 7 and 8 o'clock. And then a lot of podcasts available on OneRadioNetwork.com. We're going to do a special, uh, we do a special Saturday edition of The Real World of Money every Saturday at 3 p.m. Central. And this Saturday, we're going to dig really deep and uh, uh, really have surgery on the Federal Reserve. So you'll understand this baby with uh, in uh, just great detail, and then have those podcasts, of course, so you can listen over and over and really understand it and learn it. Um, but we're still going to talk about what the Fed Open Market Committee did today. I mean, because that release was is very timely. Oh, you mean today? Yeah, that release was very important. Oh, you want to talk more about that now? Yeah. Okay, well, let's do that. Because, you know, what they were talking about, what the minutes reveal they were talking about, is, you know, we, we mentioned this auction, term auction facility, right? Term auction facility. Yeah, what do we call it? The bailout fund. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
So three things these guys did. First thing they did is they said, um, beginning in mid-December 2008, Mm -hmm. they're extending for another year swap arrangements with the Bank of Canada and Bank of Mexico. Uh, Bank of Canada is $2 billion and Bank of Mexico is $3 billion. Now, both of them work like this. You know, Mexico, you print up $3 billion of your money and give it to us, and then we'll print up $2 billion of our money and give it to you, or three, you know, equivalent amount. Whatever the, uh, Whatever the exchange rate the exchange. is. And what's the purpose of that? To help each other out. You know, to to uh, currency swaps are their number one tool for putting money in, in a place where the Congress might not. You and know, why do we want three billion dollars worth of pesos? We why, don't. why do they we, want them? We don't. Why do? Why do? What we does it don't help want them? them, but it helps them because they're able to, to to then give the Bank of Mexico, which again, I've you've, I've given my opinion that that's just an outpost of the Federal Reserve. Right. But they're able to send three billion dollars into the Mexican Central Bank. Uh, with an with an exchange of three billion dollars in Mexican pesos, which there's no shortage of, so the reality is is it allows uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York to uh, to com- conduct statecraft effectively. Statecraft meaning meaning the job of the State Department. You know, I think if if Congress was asked right now to you know loan three billion dollars to Mexico in exchange for three billion dollars in in Mexican currency, they would probably say no. Uh, instead, the Fed does it. The same with Canada. So, so they. Um, this is typically the wow currency the currency swaps. swaps. It's an entire separate area that you know when when the you remember when the Russians were in trouble when the, the there was a danger that they yeah, had the ruble right right and the Russians actually came before Congress and said you know okay the wall has collapsed but now we have scientists running around we're afraid they're going to sell our nuclear secrets and we need money could you help us. And I think one congressman raised his hand and said, uh, excuse me, what are you going to do with the money? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, if you're going to be like that, we're leaving. <laughs> and that was it. You never heard another thing about it. Well, unbeknownst to us, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York printed up a bunch of dollars and did a currency swap with the Russian Central Bank. So they got their bailout. We didn't even know about it. They got their dollars. Mm-hmm. We got a bunch of Russian rubles, which turned out to be a pretty good deal, actually. And uh, the 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 statecraft was conducted without the knowledge of Congress. So then we go back then to the pesos. The, the Mexican government prints pesos just like they print. Well, the Mexican central bank. Central bank prints gets pesos. The pesos, yeah. Just like, just like the. Uh, Yes, Federal Reserve. That's right, Federal Reserve Bank. Right. So uh, just nobody will take them. Yeah. Well, why? Why does the Federal Reserve want to give exchange? I still don't understand what the what the benefit is. Well, yeah, we wouldn't know what the benefit is. We would we would have no way of knowing what the arrangement is or what was being what the done. deal is or what, what the they deal get is. For yeah, or what, or exactly. Like All that. we know is that the Fed has now, by unanimous vote, given the committee another year to do this. So that's one of the things that they did today. Today, well, this is revealed today. I see. They actually I did see. it a few weeks ago. Of course, ago. nobody no, nobody talks about this or knows what this nobody means. Nobody even it's, reads these things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The second thing is they talked about the continuing strains in interbank and other financial markets, mm-hmm. and they wanted to expand the size of the term auction facility. So they voted uh, that they would create um, an, an existing relationship swap account 
with the European Central Bank, ECB, mm -hmm. for $50 billion, and draws of up to $25 billion are authorized. And they <laughs> ex extended that out to 2009, so they gave the Federal Open Market Committee unilateral authority to do you know, $25 billion chunks up to $50 billion. In, in kind of like a line of credit for the ECB? Yeah, more like a line of credit for us. For us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because in this case, I'm certain we'd get the euro uh, from the ECB and then use them as collateral to pledge uh, you know, into our system. Same with the Swiss National Bank. Now we, we did a currency swap with them for $12 billion, and that gives us some Swiss francs. Uh, also, I'm sure, to shore up our balance sheets. Now, when you use the term we, you're you, using... We the Federal Reserve. We the Federal Reserve, not yep. we the people. Or we the dollar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, um, well, we'll get into it more on Saturday, but it seems to me it's almost it's almost ludicrous or treasonous that this pri these private bankers can then print this money that takes our sustenance out of our our money and do whatever they want with it without any approval. Yeah, that's one way to look at it. The way they look at it is it's a collateral. You know, they're giving the Swiss $12 billion in U.S. dollars, and then the Swiss are giving us $12 billion in, in Swiss francs. So whichever one of us needs the money, that's the one that gets to actually use, and I would expect that it's us that needs that $12 billion in Swiss uh, in order to shore up the balance sheets of our own system. Because remember... Uh, they're talking about, they did about $300 billion in that term auction facility. Then they sent another couple of hundred billion to America's uh, homeowners, taxpayers rather. And now they're talking about $300 billion for homeowners. So all in all, that's about a trillion dollars. And at 10 to 1, I imagine they're going to have to come up with $100 billion or so in good money, <laughs> in collateral. Mm, I see. Yeah, some kind of a base for that additional money supply. Wow. Uh, it's exactly 30 minutes after the hour, and my name is Patrick Timpone. We're with Andrew Goss, currency historian, and fascinating stuff here. So what else came out of the minutes of this meeting that happened in late April with the Federal Reserve? Anything else? Well, I, I love their acknowledgement that industrial production rose. So, you know, those that are trying to make the case for the, for the weak economy... Uh, while it's true housing has fallen off quite a bit, the industrial sector appears to be booming. So we've got gains in manufacturing output on consumer and high-tech goods, but a drop in, in the production of motor vehicles. So mining output has moved up, and factory utilization has moved up. So to suggest that the economy is stopping or slowing down is really not looking at the... At the uh, at the facts. Hmm. Now, they did note the rapid con contraction in residential construction. Yeah, I guess that's an understatement. Probably not a builder out there with a brain in his head building houses unless he's already started them and he's trying to finish them off and get paid. So I think that will, of course, uh, lead to a, an additional housing shortage 12 to 18 months out. Oh, so then housing prices should start going back up. Indeed. As, um, as they're not building new the only thing that's going to matter now is existing home sales. Hmm. And if we're not adding new uh, inventory into the system, then the sales of existing homes are going to soak up all of the foreclosures, <clears throat> all of the relisted <clears throat> homes. But generally speaking, anybody who bought a home in the last five years is going to be upside down, so they're not going to be able to sell theirs, effectively removing that from the market. 
The only people who are going to be able to sell are those that are either forced through foreclosure or those that have held their homes for a great many years who you know really don't care what it is mm-hmm. now because they bought it so cheap. Those folks will set the price, and then the rest of the market will just follow along with the folks on the sideline that just bought their homes with the foreclosure sales. Existing inventory will dry up quickly, 18 to maybe 24 months. I, I mean, I can't see it going longer than that. Uh, now, how how are we, the people, gonna gonna survive and do well, or just through all of this? Are are wages going to keep up with with the rising uh, falling dollar and goods and services rising against this dollar? Is are are employees employees oftentimes use this these kinds of times to get real stingy? Well, you know, times are tough, and we can't we can't give you a raise. Is there is that going on now, and will, well, will we see more of that? It's interesting to note the 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 you know the predominance of small business as it relates to uh, monetary categories in the United States. So for those businesses who do have pricing power, they're not having any trouble raising their prices. And but for those who oh, find like a them, local diner or something sh- like that, sure, raise yeah. your burgers or whatever, yeah, raise your prices. Yeah. And we're seeing that virtually across the board. So individual business owners who are, you know, rank and file and their employees rank and file in America, they're already starting to raise their prices in response to this weakening dollar. Next thing that I, I suspect we'll see are, is labor unrest. Uh, now that coupled with low unemployment, which this is a very important uh, factor for the Federal Reserve, they want to see unemployment rise. They want to see it rise. Yes. Because? Well, that would indicate to them that um, uh, wage earners are not in a position to ask for more money. Because if you're going to ask for more money, you're going to lose your job. And, you know, a lot of people out of work, unemployment's rising. So maybe you should just be quiet and go back to work. If, on the other hand, unemployment is falling and, you know, fewer people are looking for work, then it's easier for the employee in the minds of the Federal Reserve to ask for higher wages. All of this, of course, tied to production. It's difficult to suggest that you're not making any money when your factory is cranking out, you know, at full speed ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are the factors, I think, that will come into play in the labor markets. And the Fed, though, in those meetings said that they thought that the unemployment was going to uh, continue to go up. Well, right? they're, they're hoping it does. And mm-hmm. uh, goodness, uh, if there's a surprise in that, in that arena, um, you may see quick action by the Fed. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, the wages are certainly going up in places like China, what, in India, and and Germany, places like that, right? They're going, That's right. Yeah, yeah you're, you're seeing um, real economic growth in, in areas there. You know, uh, heck, even Vietnam became the number one importer investment demand for gold last month. Really? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, China and Singapore and uh, even in the euro area, although Japan, you have, uh, you know, a b- very poor se- sentiment. The rest of Asia is booming. Do you think do you think China's going to slow down after the Olympics? They're doing a lot of this just to just to do stuff. Indeed, I do not. I no? think what the Olympics are going to bring is a wave of people from all over the world, exactly what China's banking on, that will come to China and everyone that I've ever spoken to who's been there. Um, 
has that same opinion. Wow, what a place. I had no oh, idea. Oh, really? It's a yeah, pretty cool I, place. I, I had might, no idea. That's some money, eh? I might invest some money in China. Exactly. Uh-huh. I might, uh, you know, do my business there, take my business there, or make a business relationship there. So I think you'll see uh, uh, this be a tremendous... Well, that's what they figured it, it would be. Right. Uh, and I think that will I- actually increase China's uh, base with the... Uh, leads that they'll get from the olympics it may be a good thing that uh some uh, lots of construction has slowed down here because can we uh, speculate that concrete and steel and stuff like that with the earthquake in china is going to be pretty more expensive because they're going to they buy a lot of that here don't they yeah we were already looking at uh, tremendous inflation in all of those areas you know every good, one of them good those. time to be in the steel industry I bet. you would think yeah uh, in fact the man from Asian countries in general has been enormous in the steel area. Triple eight six six three sixty three eighty six. Email Patrick at one radio network dot com. Patrick at one radio network dot com. We have an email from Leslie, and Leslie is uh, listening in Dallas. Oh, we haven't had a Dallas listener for a while. Leslie wants to know. I've been listening to Mister Goss for a while, and I understand what he's saying, and I just. Don't know how to begin to invest in gold. And I just want him to give me a, a few ideas. She said, I don't have a lot of money, but I want to do some. I want to start. Yeah, you don't need a lot of money. I mean, uh, $20 gold pieces are available in low mint states for, you know, twelve, thirteen hundred dollars $1,300. You can buy uh, silver dollars in high mint states for 75 to $100. There are options, really, for every player there. And, now, and I would strongly recommend the $20 gold piece. So if you get a $20 gold piece for, say, 1300 bucks at gold at, what is it, 920 something Yeah, 930 Nine, Oh, is it 930 Yep. Uh, give us an idea of where that goes when gold goes to, say, 1000 Well, using uh, Mid-State 64 as an example... Um, I mean, last time gold was at 450 under the right economic conditions. See, I mean, this is what is is key here. And when gold is a thousand and falling, this sentiment is going to be different from gold, you know, being a thousand and rising. Yeah. So it is the it, it's all about the sentiment. And in the case of a, an inflationary economy, what tends to happen is, especially in these limited item, uh, limited availability items is that the premium above their last sale starts to increase, a lot like they do in the oil and every other market, right? So mm-hmm. if you're holding a $20 gold piece and it's just gone up $10 every day, every day, every day, every day, you're going to price it at least $10 higher, maybe $20 higher or $30 higher. Who knows how much higher you would go? And that, of course, increases premium. So it's the same idea with oil and other commodities. All of them, yeah. yeah when, when it's just the... The speculation of where is this thing going, that's what really drives the price. That's what really drives the price. And so it wouldn't be unreasonable to double the value of that that, uh, $1,300 coin to $2,600. So I would not be surprised to see that in a very short period of time. Like six months? Yeah, yeah, you know, you follow that oil price if... If uh, Goldman Sachs is correct, if their analyst is correct, rather, and gold hits $200, excuse me, gold, oil hits $200 in the next 6 to 12 months, 
then at the 10 to 1 ratio, gold itself, just the underlying gold in that coin, has to be $2,000. And following it from 930 to 2000 it's, I'm going to assume, going to go up 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, like a broken record. Mm. And so I would imagine premium would increase rather, rather dramatically. Now, the reverse is true in a falling market, incidentally. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. in a falling market, premium tends to d- evaporate a lot quicker. So in a rising market, however, it's good to own something that's in fixed supply. Do you think any, what, what would it take, say, in the next uh, three to six months to see gold start to go down? What would, would have to what would have to happen? That would be easy, actually. Strengthen the dollar. Let's assume just for, strengthen the dollar. Yeah, let's assume for a minute the Federal Reserve comes out tomorrow and says, and we read their minutes, and it says something like, "That's it. We're not swapping with anybody. We're not trading with anybody. We've fixed the money supply absolutely solidly at fourteen point seven trillion dollars." Is that where it is now? That's about where it is now. Yeah. Really? And again, it depends on what you count. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what it's do you? It's really fourteen seven. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, it was just thirteen the last time we talked. Not it's, too long ago. It's raging, and My they're adding. Goodness. They're adding money at a rate now that's it just boggles the mind. What would you say the inflation uh, is? Is twenty twenty percent? Twenty four. Twenty four. Yeah, and rising. And again, we don't get to see it all, so My goodness. we might have to find out in hindsight that it was more like thirty. Okay, so let's go back. So you said if the Fed came out and said, all right, That's no it. more money, man. No more money, Just, man. This is it. 14.7 is where we're going. That's it. And the dollar would start to strengthen. Yeah. And then gold would go down. Yeah. Yeah. And so would houses. Yeah. And so would uh, everything. Everything would go down because now suddenly we've got $45 trillion in, in known liabilities between the government, corporations, and individuals. Right. Okay? So now there's only $14 trillion in money to pay $45 trillion in liabilities. So now everyone is chasing after a same thing we were just talking about, chasing after a dollar that they need to make a mortgage payment or to make an interest payment or to make a, a payment. And th- those that can't gather them, well, they're foreclosed upon, and their property gets thrown into the market, and then that value falls, and so on, and it's just like a, a, a never-ending cycle until it reaches equilibrium. And I imagine that would be, you know, way down. Hmm. I mean, way, the the bottom would be about a third of so a dollar of today would be worth three dollars or four dollars just to balance those books, and then I believe there are another, you know. <sighs> Hundred to one hundred and twenty-five trillion dollars in good off-the-books liabilities that would also have to be made whole on. The it would be an endless cycle. Wow. So that means a current dollar would quickly gain value and be ten to one, maybe twelve or fifteen to one uh, of today's dollars. It'll be you know very mm-hmm. similar to what we're uh, what we're dealing with now. The forty trillion you referred to, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if I understand, that's what. What the, they, uh, the, the, whoever they is, say that that that's the current debt. If you pile everything together, it's around forty. Some say even more. Well, now we're not talking about the federal government's debt because what you get when you get that forty-four trillion is all the contingent liabilities. You know, if all the student loans go bad and all the Fannie Mae mortgages go bad and all the uh, that's how you get the forty-five trillion. Okay, everybody okay. lives. Well, that's not the debt. That's not what we're talking about. Okay. Well, what we know for a fact is that there are nine trillion or so, maybe ten, in treasury obligations, direct treasury obligations. So that's ten. But then you've got consumer debt and you have corporate debt. 
and you have sovereign debt. Oh, so that number is about 44 as well as maybe the big number, the other that's kind right. of debt. Yeah. So that's the, that's the reason. That's why I was confused, because that number, this consumer debt and all of that, it, 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 it's a moving kind of a thing, and you've got to keep paying on that. That's right. Okay. And, and it right. requires demand from more areas than mm-hmm. just the federal government, which, wow. <laughs> you know, they have their own demand for money that they'll be dealing with, but you, that is just a small portion. In reality, they're only dealing, assuming that none of their contingent obligations go bad, and, you know, they don't, you don't see a wave of foreclosures in Fannie Mae, and then suddenly now they've got to bail out Fannie Mae for a couple of billion or trillion or who knows how many. So that's, of course... Figuring their normal consumption of money, maintaining the war in Iraq, funding that, funding Social Security, funding Medicare, Medicaid, sending aid to the states, building roads, doing all the things they normally do. They have an idea of how much money they're going to need. President Bush's budget was like $3 trillion next year, right? And in 2009? Yep. It's like a $3, three trillion. trillion. That's his budget. That's his budget. Yeah, and so assuming other presidents are going to do the same, you can calculate what percentage of our money is going to be needed. How mm-hmm. much money in the money supply are we mm-hmm. going to need for everyone to get money and pay their bills? And out of the $3 trillion, what is collected from Americans in taxes about? About eight to $900 billion. Oh, not even a third. Yeah. Not even de- a third. It depends on how you add it. You know, and uh, where does the other uh, two thirds come from? Well, goodness, they sure do borrow a lot of money down there. Yeah, <laughs> they don't have any trouble borrowing money? But there's all kinds of excise taxes and all kinds of indeed stuff, right? there are. And and it's curious to me that in this unified budget, which is what that is, that's a unified budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to now count when I give you the figure of eight to nine hundred billion. I'm talking about money that's legitimately paid in in taxes, mm-hmm. and we say, okay, here's your tax money, and that's it. But they count in their $3 trillion all of the money in trust, Social Security Trust, Medicare, Medicaid. If you look at your typical uh, wage earner's paycheck, you'll see all those different categories. So the one where we're talking about 800 to $900 billion, that's just the income tax portion. Uh, but the one where we're talking about $3 trillion, now we're adding in all of your Social Security contributions, your Medicare and Medicaid payments, and any other trust funds, highway trust fund, airport trust fund, uh, transportation trust fund, you know, all the taxes that we pay on fuel and things of that nature all go into the Treasury. And although it's held in trust, they borrow it and spend it on other things. So that goes in against the $3 trillion. That's right. But then we're usually... Four or five hundred billion short. Yeah. Right. So then that's what we borrow from. Uh, and everybody, I uh, hear all these presidential candidates talk about borrowing it from the Chinese. Uh, that's a metaphor, folks. <laughs> really borrowing it from the Federal Reserve. Yeah. You're going to like this one. I'm sure you've heard of this. But a Spanish toll road operator won the bidding to operate the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Let me guess. Sintras. Sintras. Uh, yeah. yeah Sintras. Yeah. yeah, and uh, along with uh, a Citibank, Citigroup, yeah. Citigroup. Citigroup, yeah, isn't that primary owner of the New York point, Fed? Yeah, so that it's a twelve point eight billion Pennsylvania Turnpike. Yeah, so now they're going to loan. This is just a, a the the Her, slickest maneuver ever. This is they amazing. take this foreign corporation, right? They loan it thirteen billion dollars. The Federal Reserve does. Citibank. Oh, yeah. Citibank. Citigroup. Citigroup. The mm-hmm. underwriter. And maybe they'll get in the other guys, you know, they'll do three or four of them together on the deal. 
And essentially, the the foreign corporation writes, I owe you $12, 13000000000 billion. Maybe they put up a billion of their own money. Right. Who knows, you know? The reality is that they're going to borrow the other 12 or 13 whatever they need. Mm-hmm. They're going to borrow it from the primary owners of the New York Fed, in this case, City. Mm-hmm. City's going to create the money through the New York Fed, loan it to this foreign bank, take a, sh- a cut. Their underwriting fees are going to be close to a billion dollars on that deal. Citigroup? Yeah. So they're going to take a billion off the top and then give the other $12 billion to the politicians in Pennsylvania so they can go out and get themselves reelected. Then the people will pay their tolls to this Spanish consortium. It's just wow. win, win, you win, win. you got to win. be kidding. No. The $12 billion that Citigroup creates... And they loans, don't, and they don't they don't give it to uh, Centrax or whatever they are. They do give it to Centros. Centros, and oh, then Centros gives it to the Pennsylvania boys. Oh, they give it to them as what? How do they do that? We're buying your road. Here's a check. <laughs> oh, yeah. I see. So then they'll put it in one of these trust funds and steal it from it, like the Highway Trust Fund or something. Well, the money goes directly to the state of Pennsylvania. Right. So. Now, what will they do with it? That remains to be seen. The plan that I've heard is that they're going to take the $12 billion and fix up all the other roads. Oh, the other roads? Yeah. Now, in, you know in why Pennsylvania. That, yeah, you know why that makes sense to me? Hmm. Because as soon as they get the other roads fixed up, they'll sell those too. Man. Man, what a scam. What a scam. See, because remember, I, Unbelievable. See, I see us pulling out of our driveway with a transponder on our car. And the moment we use a road and emit a carbon footprint, then that transponder recognizes what we're doing, taxes us accordingly, takes our toll, and deposits it in the account of whoever is running the system. And so whoever's road... <laughs> You're kidding. No, that's the privatization of America's infrastructure. Indeed. I, I should sit down and write a report on this. Well, we, you should write a screenplay on that one. That's, yeah. that's, 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 You're not going to believe it 20 years from now, you know, when the idea of government-owned infrastructure is, oh, we don't do that. Government doesn't do that. Private business owns roads and airports and trains like they always have. But it's not really. It is really the government, Indeed. the Federal Reserve. Well, in reality, if you look at these consortiums, you'll see that they're put together with, uh, with you know, blind ownership in reality. And I wouldn't doubt that uh, the same people that are underwriting the deal are also the ones that are involved financially in the deal. So it's, it's almost going back towards a a communist kind of idea where the state owns everything, but the state would be the Federal Reserve. Yeah, more or less. Is that is? Am I, mean, I on the right track there? I, it's it's more of a privatization. Privatization. Than yeah, you know, right now we own the the roads outright. We the people. Yeah, that's what the that's what the uh, accountants would call a fixed asset, right? Okay. We've, al- we've already paid for them. Okay. We paid for them, and they're built, mm-hmm. and it's you know it's done. It's kind of like owning. This is exactly what it is. Here, you own your home outright, okay? Right. You have no mortgage on it. You go out and get a mortgage and then quit your job because now you've got all this money. Okay. Okay. So they own this turnpike. We own the turnpike outright. They're going to just sell it and then play with the money. That's right. So they're going to give the revenue stream over to Centros. 
and then Centros will use that revenue stream to offset their their investment. But knowing what we know, what we've spent the first half hour discussing about how inflation is going to rage and how the dollar is going to plummet and how you know it's going to take twice as many dollars to buy the same amount of goods and services, right. so too will the value of that toll road increase, and so too will the value of the tolls increase. And all of that accrued equity will not go to the people anymore. Now it will go to private corporations. So it's a terrible, terrible deal for the American people now at a time when infrastructure is going to cost three or four times more, you know, five, ten years from now. Now we're going to sell our infrastructure at the lowest cost. Uh, it just mm. absolutely is insane. Well, that, they, that toll road's worth $40 billion. Yeah, they well. listen to the real world of money because they're buying an appreciating asset. They're not stupid. <laughs> I mean, right? right. They, they, they're buying an absolutely. appreciating asset. Now, can we say then the people of Pennsylvania have no idea w- w- how this all works? Is not that, at all. In fact, I, I'm that, sure that the plan is sold to them on the basis of the benefit to them, the $12 billion that we're going to get right away. Right. But this is the same thing that's happening in Texas, right? It's happening everywhere. And, you know, it's the water utilities. Oh, I don't know. Goodness. Do you have water utilities where you are? I'm not are sure. Are they Andy. privately owned? Uh, a lot I'm of people sure. have wells, but, you know, here in the big city, when it all started, uh, the, the municipalities would drill their own wells, and then they would supply water to their municipality. And along came Suez Leonez with, you know, Citigroup in tow and uh, various other underwriters who convinced these municipalities that they should sell their water company to them and take this big chunk of money and go and, you know, do whatever politicians do. Mm-hmm. And every municipality in north jersey here right outside of new york city has sold their water company you know save a few and now uh the french suez leonez control the water supplies for you know a population center of one quarter the nation's population what was that line from was it thomas jefferson the, they and the corporations <laughs> that will grow up around them will yeah. deprive the people of all property. Uh, and it, and he knew it. He hit it right 250 on years ago. This guy must have been psychic, man. Yeah. And, and once these, you know, what I've always maintained is that they have such a control base now. But once they get that extra step of control in, there is no hope for the people. It really is that we're going to rise up and somehow take back our government and mm-hmm. put a stop to all these shenanigans. Forget it. Boy, I just don't it, think it's going to It'll be happen. way too profitable then. Boy, I, you know, man, I'm going to buy some gold coins. Shoot. People chasing your Holy cars God. around. Or they shut your car off because you didn't pay your tolls last month. You know, your car's you're driving along, all of a sudden your car shuts so off. So you truly think it's going to get that spooky wookie out in our future? Yes, I do. Do you really? Indeed, yeah. The idea and, and, that- and have, you, have you thought this for a long time? Or is this, is this something, I'm curious, Andrew, that has come over the last uh, couple of years more and more, thinking that this kind of scenario... This 1984 kind of uh, matrix, whatever you know, thing is is actually possible. Well, um, my my youngest daughter is 20 years old. She just had her birthday. 20 uh-huh. years old. She doesn't have a social security number. I know. Yeah, you told so, me. So, and I saw the idea of you know every person being corralled, uh, not necessarily with physical chains, but with electronic means. And as I've understood technology, so it's been you know, 20 years since I've had the basic premise, and over the last five that I've developed this um, um, idea that the next tax, if you will, the next thing to be charged for is that freedom of driving around that we accept 
you know, as though it's one of our God-given rights. Mm -hmm. And this um, interlude of high oil prices is just the beginning of the conditioning that not everyone has a right to drive. Some people just don't get that right. Mm. Boy, I tell you what, holy cow. So I can understand why you're in the... uh Gold business. I mean, it's really <laughs> yeah. is, it's one of the few, exactly kind, it, one of yeah. a few kind of things you know that you put your arms on, other than uh, obviously uh, you know friendship and love and, and compassion, and those are real. But the stuff that you know, just stuff is is real. That's, yeah. that's about it, right? I mean, it allows you to do things that you otherwise might not be able to do. And so, to Leslie and to any others out there who are listening who want to learn how to do this, I have a great little uh, audio CD entitled "Protecting Your Wealth." I'd be happy to send it to you. You know, feel free. Give me a call at my office number anytime. You could talk to me. The number's 800-468-2646. 800-468-2646. So we're, you don't see anything. Do you, what kind of rosy things do you see in the next few minutes that we have uh, happening? Do you see anything out there that's kind of like positive in the way of the dollar uh, gaining in value and things are kind of leveling out a little bit? No, what I do see is technology providing us with that, you know, uh, the leverage, if you will, to withstand inflation. So, you know, being more productive, um, information being accessible much easier, thing, getting things done being easier, you know, this sort of uh, technological advances that we always assumed would improve our lives instead is just going to uh, make it so that we can continue to exist. Yeah. Boy, it really lends a lot of credence to the idea that uh, staying home someday and just growing your own food yeah, and things, right. you know, could be a really a, a good thing to do. You Indeed know? it could, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? If the whole driving thing gets really weird. And, oh, yeah, put up a water wheel and put up a nice uh, wind turbine and some solar panels and, you know, a couple acres of food and just never leave. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the water thing, and I want to do a quick mention here. I know a gentleman who puts in rainwater collection systems, Andrew, in the Tripping Springs area. And he was telling me that in Travis County, that they have put some kind of restriction on people who are already hooked up to the city of, of uh, not allowing them to do a rainwater collection. You can do it if you, if you have a new construction, but if you're already hooked up and you got a sewer thing and all that... They say you can't do that. Isn't that bizarre? Sure. Now, how can they... Do they have authority to do it? Probably not. Nah, usually not. So they just do it and people don't do it because they think they can? Yeah, it's like, uh, who's going who's gonna to stand up and fight, right? My who's going to challenge that you can or can't do Could something? Could you imagine a government organization telling you you can't, you can't uh, collect water, rainwater? But, yeah, that's not your rainwater. You're supposed to just let it drain. It's yeah. not yours. Yeah, well, uh, the, yeah, that, that's it's just uh, quite amazing. That's Robin Hood stuff there. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like, and then also that's the king's water you're that's taking. We're right. going to start taxing the sun because you got solar panels, and well, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of you it's know, not fair that you not have fair. those panels. It's not it's fair that you got those panels. Well, the uh, Wall Street took a bath, but the only stocks I saw that were going up were all the. The, the solar stuff. Yeah, J-A-S-O and uh, S-O-L-F, the solar... You follow uh, those things? Well, I mean, if you have to buy stock, yeah. if you have an IRA or something like that, and you can only buy so much gold, uh, folks ask me what else they can do. That's my advice. 
because there's definitely going to be more people getting into solar and wind. And I mean, Boone Pickens is in the wind big time, isn't he? Sure he is. Big time. Okay, Andrew, thank you very much. Uh, once thank again, you. your number is 800-468-2646. We're going to see you Saturday, 3 o'clock. We're going to do a whole thing, really dig into the Federal Reserve and have some fun, okay? That's going to be fun. Thanks, Andrew. All right. See you. Have a good night, sir. Bye-bye. My name is Patrick Timpone. We're going to have fun tomorrow night. We have Dr. Holda Clark who's one of the great ones in the field of health. And that is tomorrow night between 7 and 8 o'clock. Tell all your friends, Dr. Hulda Clark, tomorrow night, 7 p.m. right here on One Radio Network. Know the Source on One Radio Network.